Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So hello. Um, I am not usually in the business of uh, upstaging my guests, and I don't intend to do that today. But uh, since we're talking about suicide prevention and talking about surviving suicide, there's sort of something I kind of have to get out of the way here. Uh, And and that is, uh, I was thinking today about this, that, you know, that you don't really know me if you don't know that when I was 14 years old, my father tried to kill himself. Uh, He was uh, uh, found in a coma uh, from a combination, a huge volume of alcohol and and pharmaceuticals. And um, he was in a coma for quite a while. While he was in the coma, uh, at one point, uh, sort of the second day of it, I think, we didn't have a note or anything like that. Uh, And my uh, family sent me out to search the car that he had uh, been in uh, when he went, went to do this. And I was reaching under the seat, and my hand closed around a thirty-eight pistol, which it turned out later he had brought with him to finish the job if he if he didn't like how it felt uh, dying the way that he was dying. So, um, but my father survived. He was uh, like one of our guests today, uh, fortunate enough to to come out on the other side of it, and and somewhat like w- our, our guest today, uh, a man changed very much for the good. Uh, however, it certainly left its mark on all of us. Getting ready for this show today, I've had my own little case of PTSD, uh, and uh, I, I know it changed my mother's life forever. I think for the worse, it changed his life in many ways for the better. Uh, and so there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, National uh, Suicide Prevention Week begins on September 7th. Uh, World Suicide Prevention Day is September 10th, uh, a week from now. Uh, we uh, we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, and with us in studio, uh, we wouldn't dream of trying to do a show like this without Hank Schwartz. He's psychiatrist-in-chief and vice president for behavioral health at the Institute of Living, uh, Hartford Hospital, uh, which, by the way, is the Hartford Hospital's CCU2 is where my father spent uh, a long, long time after his suicide attempt. So uh, we kind of come full circle here. Uh, Joining us uh, via studio connection from KQED in San Francisco is Kevin Hines. Kevin is the author of Cracked, Not Broken, Surviving and Thriving After a a Suicide Attempt. He's now a mental health advocate, uh, a much-sought-after speaker uh, on this subject. And a little bit later, we'll be meeting sort of um, some people from from the expanded net of of this story. Uh, We'll be talking to Kevin's father. And we'll be talking to Kevin Briggs, a different Kevin. He's a retired patrolman with the California Highway Patrol, whose duties included patrolling the Golden Gate Bridge. This isn't a show about the Golden Gate Bridge, but it is the second most used suicide site in the world um, and the first most used suicide site uh, in the United States. And in some ways, our response to the Golden Gate Bridge and what either does or doesn't get done uh, regarding the Golden Gate Bridge is kind of a comment on, on how we look at this whole subject. Uh, and how seriously we take it as a society. So um, we got a lot of things to talk about here. I think Kevin, though, uh, Kevin Hines, uh, the place to begin is with you. The place is to begin uh, is um, 14 years ago in September of 2000 uh, when uh, because of 
uh, an immeasurable pain. I think that's the word you use. Immeasurable pain uh, that you're you were suffering, sort of from a psychiatric illness. Uh, you decided you really had no alternative but to take your own life. I, I'm sure you've gotten very good at telling your story uh, on a thumbnail basis uh, with all this speaking. So I'll let you take over the narrative. Well, uh, Colin, <clears throat> 14 years ago, after uh, living with the diagnosis of bipolar disorder, type 1 with psychotic features for two years from the year, from the age of 17 and a half until 19, um, battling it uh, almost secretly, even though my family knew I had been diagnosed, what they didn't know was the that immeasurable pain that I was in uh, and I couldn't break free from. Uh, I would pretend in front of them and in front of my doctors and <clears throat> to be following such a great treatment plan and to be on a very strict routine uh, when all the while I was simply falling apart. And at 19 years of age, my my body, my mind couldn't take it anymore. Uh, it wasn't a cognitive decision to go to the bridge. I think it was more of a feeling that I, like you said, I had no other option um, and 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 I, I actually believed at that point that my family, my friends, and all my loved ones hated me, loathed me, and desperately wanted me dead. Uh, as I as I always say, uh, my brain was trying to kill me as I was uh, frantically trying to stay alive. People talk about having personal demons. They mean it usually kind of allegorically or metaphorically. You really kind of had a demon talking to you, right? You had uh, this thing, this almost audible thing that was saying stuff to you. Oh, no, it was very audible. Uh, at f- in fourth grade, I heard my first set of voices in my head that lasted uh, some weeks long uh, in school, uh, in grade school. And I told no one for the fear of what they would do with that information. I told no one because I was so worried. Even at the time, I didn't understand the shame that goes along with mental illness or what mental illness was. I just knew that I was not comfortable telling anyone my secret voices in my head uh, for fear of what they might do to me in fourth grade. And then it went away and it stopped for some time. And then at 17 and a half, uh, all the way to 19, uh, hearing voices, seeing things that uh, no one else could see, auditory, visual hallucinations, paranoid delusions, grandiose thoughts, um, all that is related to uh, bipolar disorder came funneling out, and, and, and it, it was destroying me. Uh, and at the bridge, when I attempted um, on the bus ride there, I heard voices that were completely audible this time, and they were screaming in my head that I had to die, and hey. I had to jump off the bridge. Uh, And I want to talk a little bit more about that, too. Uh, By the way, as we go along here, uh, some of you may have questions. You may have comments. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. This may be a good way to bring Hank into this conversation. But, um, Kevin, reading the book and reading the chapters that have to do with the day that preceded or the 24 hours or so that that leads up to your your jump from the bridge uh, and then the story of your jump from the bridge, you know, that you do sort of chronicle this sort of roaring, demonic voice that's telling you all these horrible things about yourself and, and that you really do have to die. Um, and, and I almost sense that, I'm not quite sure you exactly say this, but, but you kind of suggest that if anybody had asked you exactly the right question, 
Um, are are you about to harm yourself? Um, if somebody had said the exact, not, it wasn't that people weren't vigilant. People were quite vigilant. Your father was on the phone to your psychiatrist, uh, I think the day before. Uh, people were aware you were going through a bad time. But it was almost as though if somebody had said exactly the right thing that might have sort of counteracted what that voice was roaring at you the entire time, it, things might have gone differently. Can you just comment on that for a second, and then I, I want to go to Hank, too. Certainly, I'll touch upon that. You know, before this was all going on in my life, my family's life, battling this with me, um, uh, nobody knew about suicidal thoughts and ideations in their family. No one had an idea. And so um, getting there to the bridge and battling these voices, um, and, and, and yes, my father was vigilant trying to help me. I could not open up because he didn't ask me, Kevin, are you thinking of suicide? Are you thinking of harming yourself? And secondly, do you have a plan? Uh, now, we know that when when, we, when people ask this question to those uh, suffering so terribly, it's almost like an epiphany occurs. Someone has read my mind. Someone has understood uh, what is going on inside me, the, the, the thing going on inside me that I can't repeat to anyone else aloud. Uh, someone has opened up and said, hey, is this what's going on? Um, and it brings out a bit of honesty in people suffering with suicidal thoughts because all they really want is to be free from that pain. And if someone can visually see them in dire need in that potential pain, uh, their emotional state, their mental state that's worn on their face, um, it can often bring someone to say, what am I doing? And, and I do need help. Uh, and, and, and that's no fault of my father's. It's no fault of anyone else in my family. It's not that simple. It, it, it is, however, something that we can learn from. Uh, and when you see someone actively in that kind of emotional danger and distress, why not ask that question? Because it's not going to make someone think about it if they're not already thinking about it. But if they are thinking about it, it's going to make them think twice. In in uh, Japan, where they have a terrible suicide problem, they've developed this thing. I'm maybe pronouncing it wrong. Uh, in Nochi non monban, uh, which means a gatekeeper of life, somebody who recognizes the warning signs of someone who might be thinking about suicide and maybe can ask that question and bring big help. They've tried to kind of create a culture of that that gatekeeper uh, and and try to try to make people become the person who sees somebody like you, Kevin, walking towards a bridge, or in the case of Japan, where trains are used for suicide so frequently, walking towards the train tracks and, and know to ask that question to maybe intervene. And maybe as we go along here with Hank, too, we can talk about uh, how our, our culture stacks up that way and whether we're uh, kind of vigilant and caring in ways that, that might help. But Hank, before we do this, I want to sort of just pause and just say or just ask you a little bit. I'll tell you my kind of understanding of this and you can sort of uh, help me get a better understanding. My sense is that for, for psychiatry, Suicide is still kind of a mysterious thing, or at least that it eludes some of the standard clinical categories. You know, we, we talk about the fact that suicide uh, is, has now eclipsed car crashes uh, as a cause of death. And that's partly because we really know how to prevent car crashes and we know um, how to install airbags. And there's things that we know that we've been able to do as a society to make cars safer and make cars go slower, make uh, people uh, less likely to drive when they're drunk. Uh, and so people don't die so much from car crashes. Suicide's really hard, right? It's kind of a mystery. It's not one clinical problem. Kevin actual clinical diagnosis, radically different from my father's. They both tried more or less the same thing. It's really, you know, suicide isn't a disease. It's a thing that a whole bunch of different possible diseases could get you to do. And, And it seems as though for that reason, it really is this big cloudy thing that that eludes hard edged understandings. 
Absolutely. Suicide is the end point of, of many diseases. It cuts across all diagnoses. People with depression, of course, um, are very vulnerable, but people with bipolar disorder uh, who are manic, um, people with um, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder. You know, we, we always think about depression, and yet people with schizophrenia die at the rate of about 10% by suicide. And it does remain in many ways mysterious. Um, we have no lab tests for suicidality. We have no imaging scans, though, in fact, there may be some coming down the road, and I could talk about some of that research, but it's not uh, the point right now. Um, ultimately, uh, it is a very difficult issue for patients, for families, and for clinicians because it depends so much on what the patient, the person, is willing to reveal. And as Kevin has, has told us, he battled it so long in secrecy because of the feeling of shame that attaches, the stigma that attaches to being suicidal. It really is the ultimate stigma in, in, in the entire realm of stigmatized mental illness. Yes, um, if we are better informed as family members, as friends, and as clinicians to ask the kinds of questions that we ought to be asking, when people seem desperate um, and hopeless, I think we could um, open many people up and prevent many suicides. That being said, there are many people who are intent on dying, and for them, their mental illness has become a terminal illness, and suicide is um, the act of termination. And the making of the plan has become kind of a thing with its own momentum, too. And not not having the plan detected has become a thing of its own momentum. You know, Kevin, I want to just I don't want to overemphasize this, but one of the things that brought me up short in your book uh, was, uh, once again, that chapter describing the sort of day of planning this, the final 24 hours of planning this. And, and you know, we just talked about sort of what it might have meant if somebody had asked you exactly the right question uh, during that 24 hour period. And not only did that not happen, but you you describe getting uh, on a website, uh, at least one website, that was sort of pro-suicide and even pointed out to you that, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, the most popular suicide site in, in America was not far from where you were. Uh, can you say something more about that? I mean, I was just sort of astonished to find out that a young man in your position at that moment would, um, I mean, I just didn't know such a thing existed as a, a site that would tell you you know, what a great idea it is to go do this. Well, sadly, it's it's really not sort of. It's it's very real. There are websites uh, made by people who I can only deem to be as uh, living with evil thoughts and who are sick themselves. And these websites promote suicide. <clears throat> Basically, no matter who you are, what you're doing or where you're going in life, if you come to this site and you're thinking about it, they say you should do this just because. In that website, it said, if you live in San Francisco, and you go to the Golden Gate Bridge and you jump off, you will die upon impact. Good luck, exclamation point. That was a direct quote from that site. When someone is in such dire need, such emotional stress and damaging uh, mental pain, um, something like that is a calling card. Uh, and it's quite horrific to, to think that human beings in this or any other country uh, would build these sites, uh, in essence, helping people suffering 
go. And we're not talking about assisted suicide from a doctor. We're talking about people who are just promoting it because they believe it's it's the option when you're having a hard time. Uh, it's not the option. Uh, it never should be. In, in, and when it, when it is involving mental illness, the option is to go get help. Um, and it, it, it's horrifying to think that people are that careless uh, with their words and their actions, so much so that they're intrinsically connected to deaths all over the world. You know, this uh, story, and we should sort of finish a little bit anyway of your story, Kevin, and this story is kind of a story about the carelessness uh, of us, uh, of all of us. And so on this day, uh, you take the K, which is part of San Francisco's muni system. You transfer a, to a bus uh, to the, the dead ends at, at the Golden Gate Bridge. The entire time you're thinking about dying, but you're also, I think, kind of almost wondering if anybody notices you, if they're going to say anything, if they're going to do anything. You get up on the bridge and kind of the last person you see is this incredibly beautiful woman. Uh, who approaches you uh, and, and, and almost in a way that think, makes you think, well, maybe this is some kind of guardian angel who's going to stop me from doing this. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of hand the story off to you, Kevin, at this point. Sure, there I was in that bus, uh, the second bus, uh, headed out to the Golden Gate, um, all the while begging myself to get off the bus, find a phone I didn't have at the time. I didn't have any money. The bus transfer was all I had. Um and and call either my father or someone in my family to to pick me up and get me to safety and that's what I wanted uh, but then the voices you have to die you must die jump now and then I sat there in that in that second bus in the very back seat in the middle row crying like a baby uh, and and I did hear a, a man and and whoever he was with say what's wrong with that guy and that's what's wrong with that kind of situation is that instead of observing someone clearly uh, distraught and in pain and going, what's wrong with that guy? Maybe you go up to that person and say, hey, are you okay? Do you need any help? Or can I help you? Um, you, you could change the outcome uh, of an entire life. Uh, and I, I do, I, I always recall uh, the story of the of the Golden Gate Bridge uh, uh, jumper who, uh, who wrote in his note, if one person smiles at me, I will not jump today. And he smiled apparently at everyone he saw. And he is dead. Um, and I'm not saying that we all need to take up with this responsibility of saving suicidal people. I'm just saying let's be compassionate more so than we already are because I, I, I've repeated this a, a million times. We are our brothers and sisters keepers. And if we are not that, then what are we? Um, you know, I, I have come to this point in my life after the bridge, after uh, seven psych wards in less than nine years up to 2011, two psych wards days in 2010, two psych wards days in 2011, all for suicidal thought, of which I have chronic suicidal ideation. Uh, but I cope with it uh, in a much different way than someone who has those thoughts so intrusively so often who dies. I cope with it by uh, having a very strict physical, mental, emotional sleep uh, routine. Uh, all of these things keep me above ground, if you will, uh, and I know that if I if I stop one of these things, one of these uh, um, uh, treatments for my symptoms, then I'll be in trouble. Um, you know, if one of the medications stops working that I'm taking, they don't work for everyone. They work for me. If one if one of them stops working, I'm in trouble. If I don't work out every day, seven days a week, I'm in trouble. If I don't eat healthy foods most days, same thing. You got the picture. Um, you know, uh, I've come to re- realize that. Uh, to me, I can't take anything on this life for granted because I've been given this second chance. 
Um, and I just feel like I can't squander it. I have to at least try to help people. And when I went to my first presentation, which was at the grade school I, gr- I grew up in that I went to, uh, and I was asked by the priest to do a, a speech on Good Friday to 120 kids, 7th and 8th graders, uh, and I thought to myself, what is this going to do? Who am I going to help? How is this going to even matter? And there I did. I, I read my speech from the page, 17 pages long, 45 minutes, crying my eyes out, eyes out the entire time, shaking the entire time. Uh, and I got 120 letters in return. And of those 120 letters, there were several kids who were actively suicidal. And frankly, because they were minors, those letters were screened. And because those letters were screened, those young um, kids got help. And that was when I thought, you know, I have to try and, and talk to people about my story because stories that affect change and stories that are of triumph over adversity can help people see their own pain and, and potential ways to uh, to get better at what uh, they're going through. So let me tell you some things that are going to happen here. In just a little while, you're going to meet Kevin's dad, Patrick. Um, we're also uh, Hank is going to tell you about some things that are going to be going on uh, here in in Connecticut as a result uh, of Suicide Prevention Week and World Suicide Prevention Day. We've got some calls coming in. Dan from Wallingford, Jackie from New Haven. Hang on the line. We'll get you on the air here. Um, but as as we end this first segment, uh, Kevin, one of the things that I sort of do believe is that. that Sometimes even the most horrible stories, I think almost always, even the most horrible stories have one or two wonderful things buried inside them. It's almost a law of the universe. So um, just to quickly summarize, you did jump from the Golden Gate Bridge. This does kill almost everybody who does it. Uh, While in midair, you decided you didn't want to die. You sort of managed to rotate yourself around into a different direction so your uh, feet would hit the water. That was still a tremendous physical uh, impact, shattering vertebrae, which then uh, uh, pierced uh, other parts of your uh, your soft tissue. Um, this uh, was as close to death as you could come. Hypothermia was a problem. So here's the wonderful thing. You believe, and there is at least one witness uh, who confirms this, that you were kept above the water for a while anyway, kept out, enough out of the water so that you weren't drowning, you weren't completely succumbing to hypothermia by one of these uh, ever-present ubiquitous San Francisco Bay sea lions. Um, just say a, a tiny bit more about this because it really is kind of an amazing thing. Certainly. Uh, I hit the water. I went down 70, 80 feet. I eventually resurfaced without the use of my legs. And I tried to stay afloat, bobbing up and down, swallowing salt water, and something brushed by my legs. And immediately, of course, I thought it was a shark. And I didn't find out what it was until sometime later. Uh, and this thing just kept circling beneath me, bumping me up. And I was no longer wading in the water. I was floating atop it. And a gentleman named Morgan, I will not say his last name, wrote into a television show I was on called Primetime with John Quinones, Primetime Live. And uh, he wrote into ABC. ABC sent my father the email. Um, and uh, the email said, Kevin, I'm so very glad you were alive. Uh, your attempt has haunted me until this day. I was standing less than two feet away from you when you jumped. By the way, you mentioned in that TV show for suicide prevention uh, campaigning that uh, you thought there was a shark beneath you. It was no shark. The people above looking down saw what it was. It was a sea lion, and it looked to be keeping you afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind you, which is when it took off. Um, You know, I have a friend who calls that a statistical anomaly, uh, I'm not of that kind of belief system. I uh, I call it a miracle. Um, you know, uh, oftentimes around the globe, there have been instances where dolphins and sea lions aid someone who is uh, 
in trouble in the water. And I believe that is what happened. Amazing. All right. So uh, we're going to take a break there. We'll come back, as, as I say, with uh, lots more uh, information for you, uh, lots more of this story, uh, and hopefully some information that will help you help other people. And everyone else is spring bound. And when I chose to live, there was no joy, it's just a line I crossed. I wasn't worth the pain my death would cost, so I was not lost or found. So uh, we're back uh, with us uh, from San Francisco at KQED's studios. There is Kevin Hines, the author of Cracked Not Broken, Surviving and Thriving After a Suicide Attempt. Uh, he's a mental health advocate now. Um, and uh, in just a second, you will meet his father, Patrick Hines. Uh, Hank Schwartz, psychiatrist in chief uh, at the Institute of Living Hartford Hospital, is here with me in studio. And so, um, Hank, you know, in the first segment, you talked a, lot, a bit about shame uh, and uh, in connection with suicide. And I can certainly tell you that my family did not share for 35 years uh, the fact that my father had tried to kill himself uh, and for a bunch of different reasons, I think. You know, shame was certainly one of them. And this may be because it's kind of sense that, you know, you're maybe a little less employable, uh, things like that, um, and maybe a lot less employable if you have that history and, and it's known. Um, but the flip side of this is that so many families, oh, oh, I, I sort of feel like, tell, show me the family that is not dealing somewhere within the extended family with mental illness, and I'll show you the family just has failed to diagnose somebody. Everybody's got this. It's everywhere. And, and on the other hand, a small percentage of those people are suicidal. Um, and it's kind of a struggle. I mean, on, on the one hand, you really do want to be so attentive and so aware and have your antennae up so much that you can help a Kevin Hines. You can stop somebody. You can talk to somebody. You can ask the right question on the right day. On the other hand, it's almost not practical as a matter of living to treat everybody that you know who has some kind of mental illness as though they might commit suicide today. So, so how do you find that middle point? How, how, do we, how do we know whom to talk to and how to talk to them? Well, I think the point is um, to treat everyone who, that you know who may have a mental illness as having um, an issue of great concern. We, we don't have to start jumping in and asking all the right questions about suicide. We need to jump in and ask the right questions and encourage individuals who have symptoms of, of mental illness. Get people into treatment. I'm, I'm talking about shame, but you know, shame is the central driver of stigma uh, it's what in allows us to inadequately resource and to care for those with mental illness, and it's what keeps people with mental illness and their families from from talking about it. We want to get into the discussion before people are suicidal. Sure, great to encourage. You know, we need to stay alert and ask the right questions, but we really need to start the dialogue much, much sooner. And and shame really stands in the way. You know, suicide is shameful in part because we view it as a moral failure, but in fact we view mental illness as a moral failure. We you know we fail to see the illness in mental illness, and we we see the person and you know uh, kind of believe in that uh, quickie psychotherapy, which is a smack on the face that says you know just you know get with it and um, you know pick yourself up and and stop complaining. We don't say that to people with heart disease and cancer, and yet um, we have mental illness and a major killer, you know, suicide, um, that uh, it's easy to be dismissive about. 
Uh, let's uh, add to this conversation Patrick Hines. Uh, he's uh, the father of Kevin Hines. Uh, and in the book, Cracked, Not Broken, Surviving after thri- surviving and Thriving After a Suicide Attempt, um, it's clear, uh, Patrick Hines, and by the way, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Um, it's clear, Patrick Hines, that you did have your antennae up. You, you already knew that your son had a mental illness, and even within the 24 hours before he jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge, you were asking questions. You were on the phone to the psychiatrist. You suggested before you even went to work that day that maybe you and Kevin should just spend the day together uh, and do something. Uh, obviously, uh, you, you weren't walking through this with blinders on. You, you absolutely knew that there was a problem uh, in your family and a problem with somebody that, that you loved very much. Do you still, despite all that, look back and say, wow, I should have done this differently. If, you know, if I could change one thing, this is the thing I would have done? No. I find it interesting that uh, we talk about almost a magic bullet question. Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is uh, Kevin couldn't hear any question that I asked him. And he was in such a state that it was impossible to get through. Now, There's no question that, as he uh, indicates, when he went out to the bridge, if someone at that point in time said something to him, he might have reacted. But I I just have to tell you that I I asked every uh, thing I could, and uh, I called the psychiatrist the night of the previous uh, and just peppered the, the psychiatrist with, what do I do, how do I do, and when do I do? And the psychiatrist's response was, relax. And um, so from my vantage point, I would tell you that, uh, no, there was nothing I could have done as I look back on it. And, uh, again, I I want to emphasize to anybody that's listening, the key is is just to continue to ask and hope that the person you're asking can hear. I want to talk a little bit about post-jump, too. Um, and this is sort of something that you and I have both been through, is to be one of the, the family members around something like this. Um, and it, I don't even have to ask you this, because I sort of know what these reverberations are like and how many different ways you process something like this. You know, day after day after day, it sort of changes and gets a little bit different. But, you know, in terms of what you learned uh, about navigating this process and being the best possible post-attempt caregiver to your son and navigating the mental health system, do one or two big lessons emerge? Um, uh, Frankly, the thing that emerged for me was... um, the stigma, of course, and the shame, which I just ignored. And uh, I, I was very lucky that Kevin survived. It was a question at that point of making sure that I stabilized him and helped him through his recuperation. Um, the, the real issue for me w- was something you touched on earlier, and that's, uh, the, the, for example, we have fewer uh, deaths in cars because we've been so active in trying to protect ourselves in cars. And the key I want to point out is the access to uh, those issues that can create opportunity for suicide. And the Golden Gate Bridge, of course, uh, if you look at the numbers, uh, and I, I have... Uh, I find it interesting that almost uh, over 2,000 people have died there, 
and that access c- continues to be open and uh, available to anyone who wants to kill themselves. So uh, what I tried to do immediately after Kevin's attempt was uh, have a rational discussion with the people who are responsible for the administration of the Golden Gate Bridge, and that was impossible. Yeah, this has been a sort of a long-running thing, and I think the latest uh, that I've read or heard is uh, this uh, the latest process in terms of creating barriers and stuff like that, which I think started in 2008 in terms of discussions about funding and stuff like that, still is not anticipated to be uh, done in, until 2018 at the earliest, and, and you know, if then. Yeah. And, and, and so, Kevin, I'm going to ask you this, too. I, I want to ask you two questions. First of all, did it matter? I mean, in, in, you were planning to end your life. You were in incredible pain. You wanted the pain to go away. Um, did it matter that the Golden Gate Bridge was there? I mean, would you, wouldn't you just have found some other way to do this had there not been a Golden Gate Bridge more or less in your quote-unquote neighborhood? I'm glad you asked that question. <clears throat> it brings up the the interest in reduction of access to lethal means. Uh, every other method that I did think about uh, the night prior, as I as I you know made my plans, if you will, scared me beyond belief. And when I came upon that site that said the GGB was it, and this is why, it seemed it, it seemed simple. It, it, it said there, you hit water, you die upon impact. And when it, when I re, when I thought that was accurate, that it was it was done. That's what I will do. Uh, on the 25th, and and what I attempted on the 25th. Um, uh, every other option, uh, you know, th- there are many ways for someone to die by suicide. But every other option, if if you'll believe this, scared me uh, out of my socks. And I I saw this this thing that said, you know, it's, it, basically it said it was painless. You just disappear into the abyss, which is not true. Tens of ways you can die off the Golden Gate Bridge, and they're all sadly bloody and violent. And slow, uh, but I didn't know that. I only knew what I found. Um, Hank, this is sort of a, up your alley to a certain degree too, because one thing that we know is, you know, about suicides is they're all over the map in terms of the duration of the plan, the length of the time for the suicidal uh, ideation. You know, sometimes it's days and days and days, or weeks and weeks and weeks, or months and months and months. Sometimes it's a considerably more sudden impulse. So if you have easy, easy access to something that ends your life. Uh, that, in fact, may take your life uh, where, in fact, some kind of impediment, some kind of barrier, something that would give some other process some time to unfurl might have stopped it. Of course, everybody's story is a little bit different and and unique in its own way. But it's true that there are patterns um, that we've identified. And we know that, by and large, suicidal ideation doesn't just emerge um, all of a sudden, it it begins with usually thoughts that I ought to be dead, um, life's uh, not not uh, I don't want to continue living, and may progress from thoughts about it to increasing thoughts about it to beginning to plan about it to actually rehearsing the act to leaving suicide notes and then actually you know committing suicide. But one of the really important things Kevin highlighted, and that is the ambivalence that underlies the suicidal impulse for so many people right up to the last minute. And that's where this issue of access to lethal means is so important. We've got a few studies that show that for for folks who are thinking about killing themselves with a gun, that 
removing the gun uh, for a period, the, the most dangerous period of five minutes when the impulse may be overtaking the person actually can prevent the suicide. And of course, the more lethal the means, um, the more dangerous. So if in, and the impulse is to go off the bridge or to shoot yourself, you're much more likely to actually kill yourself. If you take uh, medication, um, actually most people who attempt to overdose do not die uh, by overdose, and they get the second chance um, that, that, that Kevin had. But um, ambivalence and seizing that moment um, to help a person removing the access and the means for suicide is critical in suicide prevention. Because of my experience with my father and finding that gun, I became a big fan. Certainly, I mean, I'm a big fan. I'm not a big fan of guns generally, and I am a big fan of any kind of gun that has a five-digit code or something like that before you can use it because I know that my father would not have been able to do that by the time he got around to, to trying it. Yeah, more, yeah. more people die with guns of suicide than homicide in America. Um, I want to grab a few calls here because a lot of people have called in. We've got a lot of ground to cover here. Uh, Hank needs to tell us about some stuff that's happening around here. Uh, we also do want to get Kevin Briggs into this conversation at some point. But let's just uh, talk to uh, Brad in Windsor. Hi, Brad. Hey, how you doing? All right. Um, I wanted to call in to share an experience I had in February of 2008. Um, I jumped off of a cliff in Avon. Um Similar situation, I think, to Kevin's, and I haven't had the chance to read his book yet. But uh, like you said earlier, we had different diagnoses. I uh, was diagnosed with depression about a year before that. And my suicidal ideation started about a month, um, uh, probably early January 2008, following some breakup I had with a high school girlfriend and a bleak outlook for the future. And the day of attempting suicide is, I think, the most important day to be able to reach people with a risk of suicidality. Mm-hmm. Um, it's especially difficult, though, because it's well reported that people that are suicidal on the day of their, when when all of their suicidal ideations culminate, they have a look of assurance or an, an uncharacteristic smile upon them sort of thing. And it's hard to differentiate someone being happy at that time from someone being incredibly, incredibly bad. And I think the the longing for finality that comes with suicide is sort of our last grasp at self-control mm-hmm. and maintaining some aspect of control in our lives. And it's uh, very difficult to address on a social level. I, I bet. And Brad, uh, thank you so much for your courage uh, in sharing this. And, and I, I'm, I'm trusting that uh, you're still getting the help and, and the kind of care uh, you need. Oh, cause yeah. I'm this, seeing uh, my psychiatrist in about an hour. All right. Because this is, as we know, a story that just kind of goes on and on. And I think, Ke- Kevin, yeah. you would, uh, Kevin, I think you would be the first to tell Brad, too, that for you anyway, th- this is 
for you, Kevin, kind of a life sentence, right? I mean, in all the ways that you talked about earlier, you you have to monitor yourself in in ways that the average person doesn't. Well, yes, and 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 I do monitor myself in the, in the the way that the average person doesn't. But I also believe that the average person uh, can have these stressful moments and difficult times and onsets of any kind of uh, destructive disorder at any time. So we all need to uh, set routines for our life that help us cope with all kinds of pain. And uh, I, I want to tell you, uh, sir, I'm glad you're alive, my friend, uh, from that jump. And, and and I'm sorry it got to that point, and I wish you the best um, in, in your future recovery because I'm in recovery every day. There's not a day that goes by that my symptoms don't occur. Uh, sometimes they're mild, sometimes they're medium, and sometimes they are unbearable. Um, but I will stay alive because I have made that cognitive decision that when I become suicidal at any time in my life, I'm going to walk myself into an emergency room and into a psychiatric ward so that I can be safe for at least that day and the next day. I want to go. Uh, uh, we're going to end the segment with Hank telling us a little bit about some events that are going to be going on around here. But before we get to Hank on that, Patrick Hines, I just want to go back to you because the thing that you said about the Golden Gate Bridge and reading Kevin's book, I mean, I kind of had this thought too that in a way it's almost a symbol of the, to the, the degree to which we haven't really grappled with, come to grips with this enormous problem in our society. I mean, there are just an awful lot of people who kill themselves. Uh, and uh, and you look at the Golden Gate Bridge and the fact that, you know, structurally they st- haven't fixed this thing that's the leading site of suicide in the United States. There, there's a way in which it's a symbol of, if not our indifference, our, our incompetence at addressing this. I, I have never heard that before, and I have to congratulate you. That is exactly what the Golden Gate Bridge represents. To me, it represents the apathy of our society towards mental health generally. When you have a structure that's been up for 77 years and for 77 years has killed approximately 30 people a year and it is ignored, I think it's exactly what you described. It is a, it is a symbol of certainly American apathy towards mental health. Um, now let's talk about sort of uh, non-apathy towards mental health. And, and so, Hank Schwartz, tell us kind of what's going on in, in uh, your neck of the woods uh, in connection to Suicide Prevention Week. Sure. I just want to make one quick sure. comment about Kevin's last comment and how important his commitment to come forward come to a psychiatric hospital, come to his psychiatrist whenever he feels suicidal again in the future. Because in the final analysis no one, no family member, no friend, no psychiatrist or other behavioral health clinician can always ask just the right question at the right time. And so that commitment is is terrific, and I hope that message um, really uh, gets across. So one of the things that we're doing at uh, Hartford Hospital and the Institute of Living is uh, to, to really focus on World Suicide Prevention Week, and we're doing that with uh, a number of events uh, that many of you may be interested in. First, uh, we're going to have Kevin Hines back. Now, this is a little after Suicide Prevention Week, but on Tuesday, September 23rd, Kevin will be uh, the featured speaker at a symposium in West Hartford at the uh, West Hartford uh, Conference Center and, and Meeting Center. And he'll be talking about Crack Not, Not Broken, his his survivor's experience and we're expecting that that will be um, a, a very important, uh, informative evening. 
Um, during Suicide Prevention Week, we have a, a number of support groups uh, available. One is for survivors of suicide. We're doing that on Wednesday, September 10th um, at 7 p.m., from 7 to 8.15 p.m. at Hartford HealthCare's Avon Satellite Collection, uh, uh, I'm sorry, location. Uh, that's at 100 Simsbury Road, the second floor, Suite 205. Um, we have another support group um, for clinicians who have lost patients to suicide, and that is an important group, and we'd like to extend our hand to you. That's on Thursday, September 11th uh, from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. It's on the grounds of the Institute of Living in our Massachusetts cottage. Uh, we'll be serving lunch, and um, we hope to see you there. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. We're going to take a break here. Thank you so much to Patrick Hines, uh, father of Kevin, uh, for joining us here today. I have mismanaged the clock. As usual, we'll have to rush through a lot of things. We'll get some calls on the air if possible when we get back. What has happened to it all? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Jackie Filson and Josh Nalea. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and Katie Talarski is our executive producer. For more information and audio of the show, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the tangled history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Back to Colin. Sort of a sunnier uh, topic tomorrow. I just want to say that um, any information that you heard, uh, particularly the stuff that Hank just uh, said about uh, some of these events, we'll get it up on our website. There'll be a show page at WNPR.org that will have the, all the audio from this show and as many resources as we can possibly direct you to. I, I also want to quickly mention that uh, Kevin's book, Kevin Hines' book, Cracked Not Broken, at the end has kind of really interesting appendix that has um, his own uh, it's almost like a toolbox, uh, his own toolbox for dealing with some of this stuff, ranging from a binder uh, that he thinks uh, y- you might want to create. And it's it's pretty interesting. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it. So um, uh, th- that's a good place to look, too, if you're looking for resources. Uh, but there are plenty of them out there. I want to get uh, one or two call. Actually, I should, let's, before, so we don't miss them. There's a place I want to go with Hank and Kevin, but let's try to make sure some of these callers get on the air, too. Here's Dan in Wallingford. Hi, Dan. Hi, Colin. Thank you so much for doing this program, for your guests being on. Uh, Fourteen months ago, a very close friend of mine uh, took his own life, and he lost his job and gone through a divorce, and he had dealt with mild depression he once shared with me before. Um, But there was, you know, that classic downward spiral that is so often described with depression. Um, And I would say I saw him two weeks prior to the event, and I didn't know anything about what to look for with a person with with the suicidal uh, thoughts. And what I was struck with still to this day is the physical manifestation, the physical change that was visually apparent upon seeing him. He looked about three inches shorter. The, the color of his skin had, the, all the sheen was gone. Had I known then, uh, I could have asked leading questions that brought him to the point of where I could have asked him if he had these thoughts. Um, and what, the only way for me to get through this situation was, was to research. And I read everything I could, and 
and learned about it. And it, what I was also struck with is such an it's such an active process. He was talking about some of his internal dialogue, not necessarily voices like your guest was feeling or hearing, but just the constant negativity that it was just everything was BS. It wasn't worth the effort. No, it doesn't. Nothing really matters. He was bored. He was there was no zest for life. And the only way to get rid of that internal dialogue was to actively remove himself through it. And unfortunately, the only way he knew was to uh, unfortunately jump off a bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, thank you for doing this. Because- well, Dan, thanks for sharing your story. Sure. And, and do understand, I mean, you know, as we're sort of sending you two messages at once here, I think. One of them is, you know, be on the lookout. And, and as Hank says, don't wait for people's problems to get to the point where they are suicidal. Uh, we ought to all be just, you know, as Kevin says, each other's brothers and sisters and and uh, be kind and aware of each other. But there's also, as Patrick Hines was saying, there, sometimes there isn't a magic question you can ask. Sometimes there isn't, you know, even if you'd said exactly the right thing to your friend, it wouldn't necessarily have forestalled this. You know, Kevin, we're, we're just almost out of time. We have almost no time left. But if you could do this in 30 to 60 seconds. I mean, one of the things that Hank was talking about during the break, I think we talk about this differently than we talk about almost anything, right? It's still, suicide is still wrapped up in this veil of fear and superstition and moral shaming. You know, as somebody who who goes around talking about this a lot, I'm sure you encounter that a lot too, that still as a culture, we almost don't know how to have a conversation. You know, uh, listen, everywhere I go, every high school and every college I go to, I have a young man or woman come up to me and say, I have this blank disorder, a mental mental illness, and my parents don't believe it's real. So right now, uh, what I'm uh, a part of is a, is, a, is a suicide attempt survivors campaign across the country and across the globe working hard to change the mindset of the average person who has no idea how to understand the perils of, of mental illness. And it, um, if you go on, on Twitter, it's Zero Suicide and The Way Forward. And we are desperately trying to reach out to everyone everywhere that we can in different spots around the country and the globe and, and let people know now is the time to talk. Now is the time to get help. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't sit in denial like I did for eight years and torture my family and my parents and my loved ones. Kevin, thank you so much. Kevin Hines, thanks to Hank Schwartz, also Patrick Hines. Sorry we didn't get to Kevin Briggs. Any calls we missed, I'm sorry, to my email, Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. Don't hesitate to write to me about this. Don't give up, cause I believe.